good issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here, bidding you welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Come on in, it's going to be lovely. And I would like you to meet Danielle Dershlack, a video artist working with film and collage with a firm focus on Jewishness, wealth and women. It is a heady combo and, as she readily admits, something of a hot potato and then some. Danielle's first solo exhibition outside of the US lands at the Four Corners Gallery in London's Bethnal Green on Tuesday and runs until Saturday. In Chosen, she explores the political and psychological complexities of American Jewish wealth with a steady eye on the idea of powerful victims, history and legacy. The centrepiece is her short film, Eleanor of Illinois, which I've watched several times now, and it is an astonishing, disconcerting look at wealthy Jewish women. And we're talking the 1% here when we're talking about wealth, something Danielle knows very well, given her family background, family money, and the complicated baggage, as well as a lot of privilege that brings with it. Danielle was an utter joy to chat with, warm, funny and candid, and her playfulness really comes across in her work, which shines a light on a subject that is often left in the shadows so as not to add fuel to sadly still rampant anti-Semitism. She also handed me the phrase, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and I will be using it. You can check out some of Danielle's work on her website, daniellederslag.com, and I'm going to spell that for you, Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, Derschlag, D-U-R-C-H-S-L-A-G. And you can find out more about the Four Corners Gallery's opening hours, etc. at fourcornersfilm.co.uk. I am joined on the Zoom by New York-based artist and filmmaker, Danielle Derschlag. Danielle, hello. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. The art world is huge. Tell us a little bit about the different mediums that as an artist you like to work in. Yeah, you know, predominantly I work in moving images. So I I write and direct live action films, uh, short films, but I also work a lot with film history. I make something that I call video collages, by which I mean I'm taking classic footage from film. And by classic, we often mean, and in this case I do, directed by men some time ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking that kind of footage and I'm using animation and voice performers and editing techniques, and I'm reconfiguring it into stories about Jewish women. So as one example, um, I think you know this is a, a very well-known film, I would assume, in England, a classic, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Hitchcock, right? Yep. Really the story of Jimmy Stewart, Doris Day gets to make some fun appearances, but it's his tale. In my version, which is only two minutes long, is called The Woman Who Heard Too Much. <laughs> and it centers exclusively on Doris, except I've transformed her into a Jewish woman for my version of the film. There's a classic scene in that movie where she is witnessing a, a near murder inside of, of Albert Hall. And in my version of the film, instead, she's becoming overwrought at hearing a very profound rendition of the song Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof. So to give you a sense, I'm really using the cinematic tools available to me as an artist to reconfigure these sort of male-driven classic filmic stories into stories that represent more of my experience as a contemporary Jewish woman. And there's a real playfulness and slightly snarky sense of humour. I absolutely mean that as a compliment in a Thank lot of you. your work. Is that important to you? Oh, yeah. First of all, the bulk of my work is really kind of exploring the complications and the complexities of Jewish wealth. It's not an easy topic. It's very tender to the touch. The reason why I even feel capable of addressing it is because I come from that experience. You know, I grew up in the Jewish 1%. 
But as you can imagine, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are totally obsessed with Jewish money. That's what the core of what they are. Mm. So even addressing some of the cultural norms or confusions of Jewish wealth can feel extremely threatening to people in my tribe. Jokes help. You know, if I can get somebody to laugh while I'm sort of giving them a somewhat challenging bit of medicine, let's say, in my messaging, I've just found that people open up. The other thing is, you know, I make this work partly because I love being a Jew. It's at the center of who I am, and it's a tradition I'm really grateful for, even though I wrestle with it, of course, like we all do with our identities. And something Jews historically and and even today do that I just love is we love a joke. You know, Jewish humor has such an incredible history. So I'm aiming to be a teeny tiny aspect of that by bringing it into these fine art objects. And, and just to say for folks who are listening, who might not go to a lot of galleries and, and museums, jokes are rarely on offer in contemporary <laughs> art. Right. <True> story. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would imagine it's rare for a family in London to say, you know, I'm really ready for a giggle today. Let's hit the National Gallery. Right. Mm-hmm. But for me, Part of how I'm sort of, if you'll forgive this made up verb, Jewifying these pieces of film is I'm also trying to give permission for a laugh inside what is historically a more serious space, you know, a a kind of fine art space, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Because I think the other aspect of what you're dealing with, that big old mix of persecution and privilege, is that even with your background, that is still a hot potato, right? Hot potato is putting it politely. Yes, it, it is. Uh, it is profoundly fraught, let's say. Um, but, you know, I also think partly why I think it merits examination is because this discourse that, that anti-Semites have about Jews and money, it's really paralyzed my community's capacity to have open, meaningful, challenging conversations internally and publicly about our relationship to capitalism, about our relationship to privilege. I say this in a lot of my writing about my work. What does it mean to be powerful victims? I grew up with a really well-earned sense of victim identity, right? You know all the stories, I'm sure your listeners do too, about the many horrors that have uh, the Jewish community has experienced historically and continuing to this day. So that's real. It's earned. But how do you sort of metabolize that alongside growing up as I did in really extreme affluence, which comes with power and tethers to connections to, you know, philanthropy and business that are powerful. So for Jewish clans like mine, as an artist, I'm just fascinated by those tensions, right? What's hidden, what's public, what's considered uh, success and something to be proud of, what's considered dangerous to admit to publicly because somehow it confirms anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a girlfriend of mine uh, recently said to me, why don't you just start making some work that you don't have to have nightmares about, right? Because yeah. <laughs> this is not easy stuff to talk about, but um, for better or worse, that's where I like to live in my artistic output. I think the things that we're most uncomfortable about tend to make the most fascinating, meaningful, and in my view, necessary art. And also you're talking about history, dynasty, legacy, what we inherit. They're all key concepts in your work. And of course, they're all things that we don't really have a say in, right? They're just handed down to us. That's right. Doesn't stop us being judged on them. Yes. You know, that's a fascinating aspect 
of this dynamic. And I will say the example that sort of comes to mind that I think might be interesting for some of your listeners is um, everyone knows, right? The King Edward who famously abdicated. Mm -hmm. He was my great grandfather's neighbor at the Waldorf Historia, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Take a moment and really think about him. There he is at the Waldorf Historia with my great grandfather. Just to be clear, my great grandfather at this point lives at the Waldorf Historia, but he started off as a shoe peddler selling shoes door to door. So these two men, let's say, had radically different trajectories to the Waldorf Historia. They became very close friends. Um, We don't have proof of this, but there's a kind of rumor in the family that my great-grandfather helped to financially support the Duke at points. Um, That's a fascinating dynamic between a very proud and and clearly openly Jewish person, my great-grandfather, and someone who infamously had pro-Nazi leanings. Mm -hmm. Wealth was the thing that brought them together. Right. So when you talk about, you know, the, what we've inherited and, and what we're responsible for or judged on, I'm not responsible for my great grandfather choosing to have a close friendship with a man whose politics were abhorrent and frankly, pro our destruction. I also have compassion for my great grandfather there. You're still thinking of yourself as a former shoe peddler and the former king of England knocks on your door and says, let's have dinner. That's hard to say no to, mm. especially for a tribe like mine where our identity in life is so rooted in a sense of fear, a sense of scarcity. So am I responsible for their dynamic or him, them choosing each other? No. Did I grow up hilariously in Chicago, Illinois, eating our major ritual meals on the Duke's China? I did. So that's not my fault or responsibility, but I do think if you've grown up with the kind of privilege that I was so randomly lucky to grow up with through no merit of my own, I do believe that there's something of an obligation to contend with some of these ethical questions, cultural confusions, because, you know, if you don't, then it's so easy to assume that the current system works for everybody. And you and I know that it doesn't. So that's partly why I make this work. They always say in this country, I don't know if this is a saying you guys have, that sunlight is the best disinfectant. I've never heard that before. Oh, really? Interesting. It's a big American phrase. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, I don't know if it's always true, but I do feel it's true about aspects of life that feel shameful or tender to the touch. And Jewish wealth is definitely one of those aspects. So Chosen, your very first solo show outside of the US, which comes to London on Tuesday, the 11th of October, has a particular focus on women. The exhibition and the contents within look at what you term and mentioned earlier powerful victims. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? I'm so excited about this exhibition. <laughs> I cannot wait. I just cannot wait. So, you know, when when visitors, ideally, I hope they come, walk into this gallery, they're going to see a, in the window um, a sort of feminist photo installation that I can get into in a bit. But th- when they walk into the main galleries, they're really going to see video pieces. And they're going to see video pieces with a lot of footage that might be familiar to them. Mm-hmm. They'll see footage from The Age of Innocence, famous Scorsese film. They'll see footage from Dangerous Liaisons, Stephen Frears, right? But they'll also see that immediately, when they put the headphones on in particular, that I have reconstrued these original films as feminist stories about the Jewish 1%. When I reference powerful victims, yes, I'm talking about wealthy Jews, because as I just said, right, clans like mine hold both identities. But also within clans like mine, I'm especially interested in and fascinated by, partly because I am one, 
what it means to be a wealthy Jewish woman. There's a lot of access and power that comes with that affluence. But because Jewish wealth is so often, in my experience, copying the rituals, aesthetics, and norms of Christian aristocratic wealth, sort of the wealth before ours that we're emulating, Mm -hmm. we've taken on a lot of the aspects of that culture, including really severe patriarchal norms. So what does it mean to be a woman who has all this wealth, all this access, but is also severely confined by the norms of patriarchy? Those dynamics fascinate me. So I think wealthy Jews in general have this idea of being powerful victims, but especially women inside of these dynastic families really are both victims and powerful. And how we navigate that is complicated. You know, human brains are not phenomenal, in my experience, at holding contradictory ideas simultaneously. But being powerful victims is a reality here in the work that I'm making. So that's what I'm contending with in these video pieces. There must be a, an added frustration as well. So for someone who was raised a Roman Catholic, it is a very patriarchal religion. And mm. Judaism is the most matriarchal, right? Ooh, is let, it? Uh, let, <laughs> well, I'm very curious about what leads you to that perception. Can you tell me? Well, it's passed down the maternal line. Interesting. So that is true. Whether or not you count, so to speak, as a Jew, depending on who you're talking to, you know, Jewishness is famous for everyone disagreeing. But the general <laughs> consensus is that, um, you know, who counts as a Jew, especially for an Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox kind of um, environment, is through the woman. Um, which is particular. And by the way, fascinating, right? And and something that I find really interesting mm. and dynamic. But that's one tiny aspect of Jewish life. So this has changed dramatically now. But when I was growing up, I didn't know a female rabbi. You know, I didn't know one. Hilariously, many years later, my mom became one. She was one of many women who in the 90s and beyond realized, oh, I can do this, Right. The bima, which is the word we use for the stage of the synagogue, where all the sort of um, the Torah sits, our sacred scroll, and also where the, the people leading the service stand. In my childhood experience, that was an exclusively male environment up there. And I went to what I'd call a mid-range synagogue. You know, in Judaism, I don't want to confuse anybody. They're basically, if I put it really simply, three basic movements reform, conservative, and orthodox. And the joke about that in Jewish life is that it means lazy, hazy, and crazy. <laughs> I mean, with, with Catholics, we've just got guilty, guilty, and guilty. So I, Love I like it. the diversity. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so I was raised hazy, but when we would go and travel abroad in particular, and my father always insisted that we would go to synagogue wherever we went, Tunisia, Europe, South America, Those spaces were almost exclusively orthodox, so the crazy level. And my experiences growing up in those spaces was violently misogynistic um, because there's and this is the window installation that's in my show. It's called mechitza, which is the Hebrew word for partition. A mechitza is a partition or barrier inside a synagogue, usually a very traditional orthodox synagogue that separates men and women. And depending on the synagogue, that exclusion can be very intense. The most extreme version I ever had of it, I believe was in Tunisia, where I wasn't even allowed in the same room as the men. I was placed in a separate cave-like room with no lights and vents so I could hear the service. 
because the whole thinking behind this is that my body, my normal human body, ostensibly created by God, just like theirs, would be so distracting to their divine experience that I needed to be hidden. Yeah. You can imagine the rage. I was also a teenager, which is a wonderful time for feminist rage. Um, and <laughs> it really you is. Know, <laughs> it, it's the best. I, in some ways, I miss it. I'm still angry, though. So that's good. Oh, yeah. But yeah. You know, there's lots to be furious about. But, you know, it's interesting to me that you that that perception even exists that Judaism is sort of like the pro ladies faith. So there's some truth in that. You know, it's very historically pro choice, although some ultra orthodox people are shifting on that in my country. Um, and this matrilineal lineage is also definitely, we could argue, a sort of feminist idea. But structurally, the way synagogues are run, the way Jewish institutional life is run, it's very patriarchal. Because, you know, one of the things about patriarchy, as much as we hate it, is that it is phenomenal at entering every nook and cranny of consciously lived life. Judaism is no different there. Oh, yeah. It's like water. Yes, Thank you very much. I am sorry that you had to, but I appreciate the 101. And it's really <laughs> informative. Not at all. It's my pleasure. I think I meant it more relatively, though, that I think mm. all organized or most organized religions are patriarchal. Like there's no yes. escaping that. While we're talking of powerful victims can we talk about your short film Eleanor of Illinois I'd love to so tell us who is Eleanor and what does she represent and why so this is a film that I wrote and directed that came out in 2019 literally this emerged it had its U.S. premiere like a few days but no maybe a month before shutdown so it was just hmm. starting. You know, as I said, I'm obsessed with film history and, and a lot of my work is reconfiguring it to sort of tell the stories I want to tell. I grew up watching The Lion in Winter as a kid on a loop. If anyone hasn't seen it, my God, go see it. Go see it for Katherine Hepburn alone. She's incredible in it. She plays Eleanor of Aquitaine to Peter O'Toole's King Henry. And I I was obsessed with this movie from a very young age, which is sort of an interesting thing because... It's mostly just people talking, mm -hmm. right? This is It's not a classic ki uh, kids film, let's say. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a classic no, kids film. No, it's definitely not. But I think, in fact, I really believe that partly why I identified so strongly with this film, so much so that in fifth grade, I did a monologue as Eleanor of Aquitaine for my class based on the film, was because even though I was watching Christian, a, a representation, I should say, a portrait of Christian medieval royal people, so many of those dynamics were deeply familiar to me in my own wealthy home, even though we were contemporary Jewish people in Illinois, pretty far away from Eleanor of Aquitaine and her world. Mm -hmm. So I decided in my adult artist life, because I could never stop thinking about this movie and wanting to do something with it, that I would spend, it ended up being about a year, recutting Catherine Hepburn's dialogue from the film, actually manipulating the words that she says in that dialogue to create a six minute long audio monologue in Catherine Hepburn's voice, portraying that character instead as a disappointed Jewish mom at Passover. So in the film, Eleanor of Illinois, Judy Kuhn, who is both a Broadway and a West End legend, and I was so lucky to work with her, she embodies this character. So we hear in the film both Judy speaking as this contemporary character, Eleanor of Illinois, but she's also channeling, and we can hear it in the dialogue, the words of 
Eleanor of Aquitaine. And the reason I did that is because I do think, as I mentioned before, a lot of Jewish wealth is really copying unconsciously these sort of ancient Christian aristocratic ways of speaking and doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, you know, just in general, I find that when you add wealth to normal family dynamics, you know, normal family dysfunction, you get opera, right? Yeah, yeah. The volume increases, the the language becomes bigger. That film is such an excellent example of that. So I really lived inside of Catherine Hepburn's performance quite joyfully, I should say, for that year. And partly why I'm so kind of tickled by that project is because just getting Catherine Hepburn through my audio manipulation, I worked with a wonderful audio person here to do it, um, just getting her to say in that incredible Catherine Hepburn voice, Seder, which is the word that we use for the meal at Passover. Just getting her to say Seder from this film, a word, by the way, I'm confident she never said in life either, um, <laughs> was so pleasurable for me. You know, a lot of my work, you mentioned playfulness, comes from sort of a joke in my mind that I can't let go. Getting Catherine Hepburn to sound Jewish was a joke I couldn't let go because at least in this country, that iconic voice of hers really is the voice of sort of high wasp society, which is a word we use in the States to mean sort of like non-Catholic Christian wealth. I think since Jews are channeling that anyway, I decided to make it more visible, more obvious by having it in the film alongside Judy's words. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my research and reading around your work, you refer to it as wasp drag right yes and we don't have wasp as a term in the uk but to anyone who's watched sex in the city we're thinking bunny charlotte's mother-in-law and indeed charlotte herself right oh thank you so much that i've never used i'm going to use that from now on that is right that's who we're talking about In, in fact there's a kind of famous moment from sex in the city where charlotte is talking to her girlfriends about her marriage and she says we're wasps we don't fight right (laughs) Um, It's sort of a signifier in this country for a kind of reserved, angora-wearing, pearl-necklace-heavy kind of identity. Um, Even though she was not this, because obviously she had a very different background, the aesthetics of Margaret Thatcher, I'd say, would really read as waspy in American culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something to aim for. No, definitely not. after that reference. Correct. There's a sort of uptightness and and also an even though they're wealthy and they have relative freedom, a lot of freedom, there is also a silencing. Like the women in these areas are allowed to talk about certain things, but not allowed to talk about other things. And yet they have a lot of power over the family. And interestingly, and this comes across in Eleanor of Illinois, and I find it fascinating, even though they felt so contained themselves, really want to foist that on the next generation. Oh, I'm so glad that you saw that. That is a huge part of the film, because in the film, I should say, she, Eleanor of Illinois is speaking directly to the camera that represents her adult daughter. And she's really kind of pleading with her, but also getting aggressive with her, getting angry, trying to confine her back into the family line. That's exactly right. You know, I will say for what it's worth, all of these dynamics that we're describing, and I so appreciate your research on my work. It's wonderful. It's really all about my grandma buddy a blessed memory. She, for me, is the woman that I'm representing over and over again, because here was a gal who was staunchly a Democrat, identified as progressive, huge philanthropist in areas, you know, she believed in gay marriage. This is a woman in her 90s who was saying, you know, why hasn't this passed yet? You know, she was so progressive, 
And simultaneously, we never discussed the fact that her husband was a closeted gay man because that, from her wealth culture piece, was off limits. She was one of the most formal Jews I've ever met. She might have been one of the most formal Jews in the history of Jewishness. I can't say, <laughs> but it certainly felt that way. That combined with this commitment to social justice and her very tangible desire for all of us to stay within those confines of sort of patriarchal, waspy culture that she had been taught to emulate as success, that thick soup of stuff, that's where I make work, right? And I think so much of it is about her because I remember being in her apartment as a kid, which was filled with, you know, very recognizable kind of masterpieces of the pop era. And we would be talking about extremely radical politics. And then I would get a real talking to about the the hem of my skirt. Mm. That combo is both disorienting, but also from an artist perspective, really rich territory. What's going on there, right? What is happening that we're discussing things so progressively, but my visible self, my publicly lived self for her, it's so important that it stays conservative. And how much of that do you think has sunk in for you? Not as much as she would have liked. <laughs> I, uh, I think, um, <laughs> you know, these contradictions that I keep talking about were also present in her response to my work. She she was alive long enough to get a little bit of a taste that I was going in this direction. Not, not entirely. She passed, sadly, some time ago. I think that in many ways, I get to live the life that, was not available to her mm -hmm. because of her generation, because she was the first generation of our family to really enter wealth. She grew up poor, but became wealthy through her father. You know, for me, I know I have wealth confusion because you can't grow up in the 1% and not have wealth confusion. But I try to work every day through my work, through my interaction, through my politics, through what I my, through what I do with my money, everything. I'm trying to really reverse some of those lessons about public perfection, about wealth being somehow synonymous with brilliance as opposed to luck. Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative that I grew up with was that my great-grandfather basically was the most important brilliant man who had ever lived. Now, I, I don't mean to diminish his success because obviously who's more grateful than me? The reason why I get to make art full-time is because I live off of a trust thanks to him. Mm -hmm. So I'm by no means disparaging him. But it's funny to me that simultaneously with all this narrative in my kid, this about this legendary man, you know, his big idea was to freeze cake. <laughs> he started Sarah he, Lee, if anyone is wondering. Right. <laughs> he started Sarah Lee. So the big innovation and, and like, listen, I love a frozen cake. I no mean, one here is not. Come on. Yeah. No, no one here is knocking cake. I want to be clear about that, you know, in case <laughs> there's any controversy. But I give him full credit for creating an empire based on that idea, but it's funny and interesting that because of that, I was raised sort of to identify as the royal family of Chicago, Illinois, which in and of itself is a funny idea. Mm -hmm. Eating on the Duke's China is a funny idea. You know, for me, part of what draws me to making this work is, frankly, I just think there are aspects of Jewish wealth that are specifically funny. <laughs> okay, because you've mentioned it a lot and obviously there's a lot of people in the world, the majority of people in the world are without affluence and without influence and without a voice. Correct. So why should most of us care about the 1%? 
Oh, it's a fantastic question. And it's a question I grapple with a lot in my work. You know, the really sad, awful answer is because of people like Boris Johnson, because people who grow up with the kinds of confusions that I grew up in have access to power in a way that is singular and often, I think, scary. You know, I can't speak for the UK, obviously, and I won't. But here in America, we really have made culturally as an idea wealth synonymous with knowledge, with brilliance, with wisdom, and with worth, even with moral clarity. It explains a lot of the narratives around Donald Trump in this country that if we're looking at the actual data, make no fucking sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not a brilliant, wise, empathy-driven, caring. I I know, listen, I know I'm talking (laughs) to the converted here, but just to say, you know, why should we care about the 1%? Because for worse, the 1% runs most of this world. So I think knowing and understanding better these dynamics within dynastic family wealth they can be very political, helpful sort of pieces of data to have. You know, I remember when Donald Trump came to the fore. I was in my bed for some days after that happened. But I remember there were a lot of stories coming out at the time about, you know, how can Ivanka, his daughter, allow this? Surely, you know, she seems like a reasonable person. She's going to turn away from the family. And I would laugh to myself because that's a misunderstanding of how 1% families work. 1% families are like emotional mafias, right? It's us against the world. We're the most brilliant. We're the most important. Everyone's out to get us. And so we have to stick together. You know, I went to summer camp with Ivanka one summer. I knew her as a teen. And nothing about her sticking around and and sort of staying tethered to that system surprises me because nine times out of 10 in wealthy families, that's what happens, Right. So knowing that and having a sense of how these structures work, I do think can have political import. Um, And I also think, frankly, hopefully there can be a little bit of a sense of relief to sort of peer behind the curtain of a structure. And by a structure, I mean family wealth that really gets to create its own narrative most of the time, Mm -hmm. a narrative that's very propagandistic and positive. So I'm also trying to complicate that, which I consider hopefully a small political positive step. Absolutely, to everything you've just said. And I'd also say, you know, people fucking love succession. You know, there is that (laughs) that interest in it. Well, don't you think, you know, there are two things happening simultaneously that I think it's so fascinating, right? There's this sort of like narrative at the top, which is like, how could someone be unhappy if they have so much money, right? We've heard that question, you know, what do they have to complain about? And then underneath that is, I think, a global delight in watching wealthy people be fucked up. So... (laughs) That is an interesting combo, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I do agree that, you know, there's a fascination with sort of wealth. I I grew up watching Dynasty and Falcon Crest. Oh, my. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we loved those shows growing up. And basically, it's just about normal family dysfunction in really beautiful gowns. Yeah. Right. You know, here in the States, I don't know if it's popular overseas. We have these series called The Real Housewives, The Real Housewives of Atlanta, The Real Housewives of L.A. It's just thin beautiful, wealthy women in nice gowns being unkind to each other, basically. They're extremely popular. And a a friend of mine keeps recommending them to me. And I keep saying to him, you know, 
if I wanted to watch very thin, beautiful, wealthy women be unkind to each other, I would go back to my original community. You know, I've made a different decision. So for me, that's not entertainment. Um, but I think for a lot of people it is. And, and you're exactly right that I'm using that interest, hopefully, to draw out some different and more politically progressive conclusions for the viewer. Chosen is part of Freeze Week and runs at Four Corners Gallery from Tuesday the 11th to Saturday the 15th of October. If people can't make it to Bethnal Green, where can they get their Danielle fix, please? Oh, even the thought of people having a Danielle fix fills me with joy. Thank you for that phrasing. Late November, I'm also going to have a piece on display at the Jewish Museum of Vienna in Austria. And you can always go to my website where there are excerpts of my films. You can see me on Instagram, which is at ddurch, at D-D-U-R-C-H. My website is daniellederschlag.com. And there's um, a capacity to email me through the website. And anyone who ever asks, I will send them links to watch the full film. Because my real goal is to get eyes on the work and to be in conversation with people who care about it. Amazing. Danielle, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure, really. Standard Issue for All Women.